Hello, hello, my family and friends, and welcome to today's surprise episode. Now, throughout my research, I've come across a ton of stories that I would just love to tell you all. Unfortunately, they're usually very short stories that don't provide enough content for a full episode. Well, I decided to do something about that. I decided to put out short segments in between episodes that I'm going to start calling Odds and Ends. It's a win-win in my opinion. I get to tell you these stories and provide you with additional content to hold you over in between episodes. So all that being said, without further delay, I present to you our first installment of Odds and Ends. Now our first story today is brought to you by Jerry B. Lincecum and is titled Red River Bridge War. You can find this story out of the Texas Folklore Society's 2007 publication titled Folklore in Motion, Texas Travel Lore. On Thursday, December 6, 1995, the old three-truss bridge spanning the Red River north of Denison, Texas was destroyed with 750 pounds of dynamite placed by the Texas Department of Transportation. The blasting of this structure, which in 1931 became the most famous public free bridge across the Red River between Texas and Oklahoma, marked the end of an era. However, very few people even know about the controversy that this bridge provoked only 60 years prior. This bridge was involved in a war, the Red River Bridge War of 1931. The magnificent new bridge was completed in April of 1931 through the joint efforts of Texas and Oklahoma after their offer to purchase the Colbert Toll Bridge and two others was rejected by the Toll Bridge Company. But its use was blocked by an injunction obtained by the Red River Bridge Company in federal court in Houston. Soon the controversy led to a confrontation involving the governors of both states. First some background history though. Colbert's Crossing had its beginnings at least as early as 1853, when B.F. Colbert obtained from the Chickasha Indian tribe a charter for a ferry across the Red River. Now, with language typical of Indian treaties, the charter was to last as long as grass grows and as long as water flows. The toll was $1 for a two-horse wagon and $1.25 for a four-horse wagon. $1.50 for a six-horse wagon, and $0.25 cents for a man and a horse, and $0.10 cents a head for loose cattle or horses. Now, immigration was heavy through 1871 and 1872, and the number of wagons crossing each day varied from 25 to 200. The boat ran on a cable across the river and could make a round trip in about 25 to 40 minutes. In 1872, the first Missouri-Kansas-Texas train crossed the new railroad bridge across the Red River into Texas, and on September 23rd of that year, the city of Denison was established. Colbert soon built a wooden bridge across the river, but it was washed away in 1876. Then, the Red River Bridge Company was established, with most of the stockholders being Denison residents. They claimed that in 1875, a franchise had been given to Colbert by the Chickasha and Choctaw nations for perpetual use to operate a ferry and that they had purchased this franchise which extended two and one half miles on either side of the bridge they constructed. Well, their bridge served until the historic flood of 1908 which also destroyed the MKT Railroad Bridge located further west. 
The replacement bridge, built by the bridge company, became highly profitable as auto traffic increased in the 1920s and 30s. The toll had risen to 75 cents for one way or a dollar for a round trip. Now, as auto traffic increased, highway commissions of both Texas and Oklahoma decided it was time to free their citizens from the burden of paying tolls by buying up all the toll bridges between the two states. However, stockholders of three of the bridge companies refused to sell. The two highway commissions then agreed to build free bridges at the location of these toll bridges and thus forced them out of business. In 1927, a Senator Jake J. Loy of Grayson County shepherded through the Texas legislature a free bridge bill that empowered the state highway department to make some settlement with the bridge owners. This bill passed in the record time of only 12 minutes and it greatly advanced the career of Loy who went on to serve several terms as Grayson County Judge. Bowing to the inevitable, the toll bridge company finally agreed to sell for payments totaling more than $200,000. There was to be an initial payment of $60,000 and 14 monthly payments of $10,000 each. The new bridge was authorized under a contract for just under $240,000 and construction began on May 14th of 1930. This triple span was to become the crowning feature of Grayson County's first new concrete highway voted in as part of a bond issue in 1929 before the Great Depression hit. However, as the new free bridge was nearing completion in April of 1931, the owners of the toll bridge company had not been paid as promised. On July 10th of 1931, before the new bridge opened, their lawyer obtained a temporary injunction in the U.S. District Court in Houston prohibiting use of the bridge on the grounds that the Texas Highway Department had not fulfilled the settlement agreement. In obedience to the injunction, Texas Governor Ross Sterling ordered barricades erected at the Texas end of the bridge. Signs at both ends of the bridge warned that the bridge was closed by court order. Then entered Oklahoma Governor William H. Murray, known as Alfalfa Bill. Born in Grayson County, Texas, in a small community named Toadsuck, on the outskirts of present-day Collinsville, Murray had run away from home at age 12. He did farm labor, chopped wood, punched cattle, sold books, taught school, and practiced law. Having settled in the Indian Territory, he got into politics, helped write the Oklahoma Constitution, became the Speaker of the Oklahoma House of Representatives, served a term in the U.S. Congress, and served as Governor of Oklahoma from 1931 to 1935. To say he was a colorful man would be an understatement. He smoked long cigars and loved a good fight. He escalated this little dispute into a war. On July 16th of 1931, Governor Murray ordered an Oklahoma Highway Department crew to plow up the approaches to the Colbert Toll Bridge on the Oklahoma side of the Red River, making it impassable, and then he had the crew remove the barricades from both ends of the new bridge. Alfalfa Bill opened the free bridge by executive order asserting that Oklahoma's half of the bridge ran lengthwise north and south across the river. Moreover, he claimed that the state of Oklahoma actually owned both banks of the Red River under the Louisiana Purchase Treaty of 1803 and contended that since the injunction issued by the U.S. District Court in Texas failed to name Oklahoma, 
he wasn't bound by its terms. He then invited the public to cross the bridge and the response was enthusiastic to say the least. Denison Herald reporters counted 493 vehicles crossing in a 45 minute period and estimates were that during a 12 hour period more than 3,000 vehicles crossed and then recrossed the bridge. The exhilaration at finally being able to cross the Big Red without paying a toll bordered on hysteria. Former Grayson County Judge Jim Dickinson, who was county auditor in 1931, recalled that he was in a lodge meeting in Sherman when someone came in and excitedly broke the news that the bridge had been opened for traffic. Dickinson said that he and others were caught up in the excitement. They quickly adjourned the meeting, put on their hats, jumped into their cars and drove rapidly up to the Red River where they were among the very first to cross the free span. He emphasized the charge of excitement they experienced as a result of the opening of the bridge. But the celebration was premature, see? Texas Governor Sterling, viewing Alfalfa Bill Murray's actions as a defiance of the federal court order and an insult to Texas, immediately sent a detachment of Texas Rangers to re-erect barricades at the bridge and keep it closed until further ordered. In charge was Ranger Captain Tom Hickman, whose many publicized encounters with bank robbers gave him an international reputation. Meanwhile, the bridge company lawyers went to a federal district court in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and on July 24th, a federal judge enjoined Governor Murray from blocking the northern approaches to the toll bridge. However, Governor Murray was not to be outdone. Acting a few hours before the injunction was issued, he declared martial law in a narrow strip of territory along the northern approaches to the toll and free bridges. He argued that this action placed him as commander of the Oklahoma National Guard above the federal court's jurisdiction. He ordered five companies of Oklahoma National Guardsmen to the north end of the bridge, stating that the bridges were to be defended against, quote, all authority except the President of the United States. He dared the courts to take any action against his blockade of the highway leading to the toll bridge. The Oklahoma Guardsmen included a machine gun platoon and brought along a howitzer with them. They pitched camp on the north ends of both the Free Bridge and the Colbert Toll Bridge with the howitzer and machine gun strategically placed. Well, by now the Dallas Morning News coverage of these events included daily front page stories and pictures. In response, the Texas Rangers were reinforced by two additional Rangers and four Grayson County Sheriff's deputies. The Rangers' only armaments consisted of their Colt 45 revolvers. The Dallas News reported that some Texans, in an excessive display of state pride, or perhaps levity, claimed the odds favored the Texas Rangers. Armed with an antique revolver, Governor or General Murray visited the battlefield and set up a tent on the banks of the Big Red, from which he inspected the troops and continued to govern the state of Oklahoma. Now, each side was dug in, ready for battle. The situation was tense. A miscue could lead to a violent confrontation, no doubt. Having the toll bridge shut down as well as the free bridge was a major inconvenience as well, and local residents found a detour. Soon, informants advised Murray that traffic was being routed across a toll bridge owned by the Kansas, Oklahoma, and Gulf Railroad five or six miles downstream at a location called Carpenter's Bluff, just east of Denison. 
Determined to keep the presence on in a forest settlement, Murray ordered his troops to plow up the approaches of that bridge also. In summary, the objective of the rangers was to keep traffic on US-75 from crossing the new bridge. Their Oklahoma counterparts kept traffic from entering the Sooner State on a toll bridge owned by a Texas company. The net result was that on the heavily traveled highway that ran from Galveston in the south all the way to Winnipeg, Canada in the north, traffic ground to a screeching halt. Local citizens in particular were upset. The closure of the bridges, the shutdowns of traffic, and the potential danger galvanized people in the affected area. Public meetings were held in Sherman and Denison on July 20th and 21st. Resolutions demanding the opening of the free bridge were passed and sent to state officials. On July 23rd, 1931, an editorial cartoon drawn by the well-known artist John Knott appeared in the Dallas Morning News with the headline, Situation Tense on the Red River Front. At this point, the news reported that Alfalfa Bill suggested a novel solution. He said that the women of Texas and Oklahoma could solve the impasse and get the bridge open if they would just meet there for some quilting and gossip. Undoubtedly, this was intended to send a message that he was open to a peaceful solution. However, Texas Governor Sterling was not receptive at all, calling the proposal tomfoolery. Now at this time, the Adjutant General of Texas was William W. Sterling, who was no relation to Governor Ross Sterling. He accompanied the Texas Rangers to the south end of the Free Bridge and oversaw the erection of a stronger barricade than the one which had been destroyed by Governor Murray's men previously. Displaying a sense of humor as well as downplaying the seriousness of the bridge war, Adjutant General Sterling sent a message to Murray which can be paraphrased as follows. If you're sending a brigade of Oklahoma National Guardsmen to the Free Bridge, I'll have four Texas Rangers remain on duty there. If you send only a regiment, I will allow two of the Rangers to return to Austin. He then returned to Austin and directed operations from there. The only shooting that actually occurred resulted from the Texas Rangers amusing themselves with target practice. They used their Colt 45s to split playing cards and strike matches at 20 paces. The only casualty of the war came when an Oklahoma National Guardsman fell and ran his bayonet through his leg. This led to a short truce as rangers helped carry him over the bridge to the Texas side and then rushed him four miles to the nearest hospital in Denison. On July 23, 1931, the Texas legislature, meeting in a special session, passed a bill which granted the Red River Bridge Company the right to sue the state in order to recover the sum claimed in the injunction. Governor Sterling immediately signed the bill into law. The bridge company then joined the state in asking the court to dissolve the injunction. Finally, on July 25th, Judge Kennery made an armistice possible. He dissolved the injunction and permitted Texas to remove the barricades. One of the first cars across the bridge this time was the black limousine carrying the triumphant governor of Oklahoma. With the barricades down, the Texas Rangers went home. However, on July 27th, Governor Murray announced that he had learned of a plot to close the free bridge permanently, and he extended the martial law zone once again to the Oklahoma boundary marker on the south bank of, or the Texas side of the Red River. Oklahoma guardsmen were stationed at both ends of the free bridge once again, and Texas newspapers spoke of an invasion. 
The Oklahoma Guard refused to leave because Judge Kennery had not decided whether to make the dissolution of the injunction permanent or not. On August 6th, he did make it permanent, and the Guardsmen finally returned home. The war was over, and the Red River Bridge was assumed to be forever free of tolls. That is, unless the legislature sees fit to extend the current pattern of rapidly expanding toll roads to include another bridge over the Big Red. The delayed opening celebration for the free bridge took place on Labor Day, September 7, 1931, but there was little enthusiasm. Local newspapers described it as a day of good fellowship and feeling. Miss Jean Murray, daughter of the governor, broke a bottle of Red River water on the bridge saying, I dedicate this bridge in the name of the governor of Oklahoma. But the governor of Oklahoma was not there. Neither was the governor of Texas, not even Senator Jake Loy, who started it all with his free bridge bill back in 1927. The legal war dragged on in the courts as the toll bridge owners sought payments for their losses. Eventually, they negotiated a new contract with Texas for $165,000, but that one later was changed as well. They also won a judgment against the state of Oklahoma in the amount of $168,000, but that was reversed by a federal appeals court. Finally, in 1938, peace was assured when Texas handed over $50,000 for full title to the toll bridge. Oklahoma also agreed to a settlement, but never paid it off. The bridge war was brought back into public attention in the late 1930s when Life magazine reported that Hitler was using the incident for propaganda purposes. Photos of the armed Texas Rangers at the barricades were published in German newspapers with commentary suggesting that there was continuous civil war in the USA. Nazi propagandists presented the bridge controversy as a dispute between the governors of Texas and Oklahoma as evidence that the US was not a nation but a chaos of little states with different laws. Actually, as this paper shows, the dispute was between the owners of the toll bridge and just about everybody else. In the mid-1950s, a new bridge was built near the 1930s span. US 75 traffic was divided, with northbound using the new bridge and southbound using the old one. In 1960, the old toll bridge was closed to traffic because of its poor condition. Later the bridge burned when a natural gas line underneath it caught fire. By the time the old three truss bridge that sparked the controversy was destroyed in 1995, hardly anyone in Grayson County remembered the Red River Bridge War of 1931. Now, our next two stories are brought to you by column writer Mike Cox out of the Texas Tales columns found on his website at MikeCoxAuthor.com and at TexasEscapes.com. And his first story is called Fort Concho Chilled Fish Mystery. In the days before instantly available color weather radar, Isaac Klein's story sounded like a Texas-sized whopper. Klein had been assigned to Fort Concho in the spring of 1885 as the officer in charge of the Army's Signal Service Station. He oversaw the West Texas Cavalry's post-telegraph service, which constituted the only real-time link to the outside world from that part of the state. He also took daily weather observations. Well, one day that August, he wired his climate report to Washington. Conditions at the fort were hot and dry, nothing else going on. 
Klein walked from the fort to the small town across the Concho River, San Angelo. As he crossed the footbridge over the summer sluggish stream, he heard a loud roar. At first he thought it could be distant thunder, but the sky was clear in every direction. As he pondered the possibilities, a wall of water nearly 20 feet high suddenly appeared upstream. Running for his life, Klein made it over the bridge in time to beat the rolling flood surge heading in his direction, but a man crossing the river in a carriage wasn't as lucky. As Klein watched in horror, a watery cliff crashed into a wagon, sending it and its occupants tumbling downstream. That was shocking enough, but what Klein saw next was simply bizarre. No matter the tragedy that just unfolded before his eyes, men soon began gathering along the river and pulling up big fish from the water. When a two-foot catfish drifted by, motivated by curiosity and the thought of fresh fried fish, Klein reached into the water to grab the big whiskered fish. What happened next stunned the young army scientist both literally and figuratively. The water was freezing cold. On a scorching summer day, something had chilled the water to the extent that it had incapacitated the fish as surely as if someone had tossed a stick of dynamite into the river itself. Klein landed his dinner, but it took him a while longer to learn what had actually caused the sudden temperature drop in the Concho River. The Signal Corps officer later found out that a giant thunderstorm had pounded West Texas about 50 miles above San Angelo, dropping hailstones the size of ostrich eggs. Leaving spheres of ice piled up in three-foot drifts, the barrage from above killed thousands of cattle. Hail chilled runoff from the intense supercell well beyond the horizon had put the Concho River on the rise and claimed several lives. Though that 1885 storm proved deadly for people and fish along the Concho River, only rarely does hail ever kill people. But of only three known hail fatalities in the United States, two of them have happened in Texas. One in the early 1930s, the other on March 28th of 2000, when one of three victims of a tornado that struck Fort Worth died after being struck by a hailstone the size of a grapefruit. Realizing the highly unusual nature of the weather-caused fish kill that he had just observed, Klein wrote an article on the storm and its after-effect for the Monthly Weather Review, a government publication. To Klein's great annoyance, the editor rejected the story as just another fanciful Texas brag. But Klein wasn't from Texas, you see, and he had both experienced the frigid river water and seen the stunned fish. To back up his claim, he checked the records and located a documented report from the summer of 1877 in which hailstones as big as oranges had killed a herd of ponies up in Wyoming's Yellowstone Valley. He also found three other storms reported in 1881 and 1882 that left high drifts of giant hailstones. Klein stayed at San Angelo until March of 1889 when the Army ordered his transfer to another weather station the Signal Corps facility at the busy port of Galveston. When Congress finally created the Weather Bureau in 1890, Klein left the Army and became Galveston's first civilian meteorologist. Ten years later, he was actually the official who tried to warn the island city of the approaching hurricane that resulted in what still stands as the nation's deadliest natural disaster. Forty-five years later, he told that story, along with the Concho Catfish tale, in his memoir, Storms, Floods, and Sunshine.
Now, speaking of Galveston, we're going to stay in Galveston for this next story. This one's by the same author, Mike Cox, and this is called The Secret Hurricane. Don't tell anybody, but there's a hurricane in the Gulf. East Texas, including Galveston, scattered thunder showers near the upper coast. This was the official weather forecast one day before a Category 2 hurricane slammed into the island city, killing 20 people and causing millions of dollars in property damage. On the night of July 26, 1943, the big coastal artillery pieces jutting from the huge concrete bunkers at Fort Crockett faced the Gulf of Mexico, ready at a moment's notice to hurl giant armor-piercing shells at an enemy vessel that might try to approach Galveston from the sea. Not since the Civil War had the island city had cause to fear hostile warships, but German U-boats had torpedoed American ships within sight of the Texas coast, and for all anyone knew, despite the best efforts of the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard, Nazi submarines might still be lurking out there in the darkness, ready to turn an oil tanker into a ball of fire. For that reason, ships leaving Galveston after the sun went down stood to sea in blackness, their running lights extinguished so as not to present a target, nor did they communicate by radio or wireless telegraph. Radio signals could be triangulated to reveal a ship's position. Weather reports from mariners could aid the enemy. Of course, wartime censorship kept most citizens blissfully ignorant of how much success Germany had enjoyed in scuttling American vessels in the Gulf and along the Atlantic seaboard. The same need-to-know mentality on the part of the government kept detailed weather forecasts out of newspapers and off commercial radio stations. In effect, the weather had become a military secret. Even without wartime censorship, when it came to weather forecasting, the state of the art wasn't particularly artful. Weather satellites weren't even the stuff of science fiction yet. Radar was a decade away from any practical application of meteorology. The Weather Channel didn't exist. Mr. and Mrs. Average American essentially had to rely on nondescript forecast or resort to old sailor's ditties like Red Sky at Morning, Sailor Take Warning. On July 27th, the Weather Bureau did admit that a tropical storm of, quote, minor size and intensity had developed in the Gulf but never used the H-word and said nothing about the weather system that seemed particularly alarming. Just some squally weather coming, most people thought. In fairness, though, given the lack of tools available to them, the government forecasters may have been taken by surprise at the intensity of the storm, which began battering Galveston that summer morning. Making landfall on Bolivar Point, the hurricane then moved across the bay and onto the mainland at Kima. The government aerometer at Galveston blew away at 1.30 p.m., but winds estimated at 85 to 100 miles an hour buffeted the island city. When the hurricane moved over Houston, which then had a population of around 600,000, the peak wind gust at the airport was clocked at 132 miles an hour. Hurricanes weren't categorized back then, but meteorologists who have studied the storm today believe that the cyclone reached around a Category 2 force. The seawall constructed after the deadly 1900 hurricane did its job and protected Galveston from catastrophic damage. 
but the storm brought flooding and left widespread moderate to severe damage over the metropolitan area. Ten crewmen aboard the Galveston, a U.S. Army Corps of Engineers dredge, drowned when the vessel was blown against the North Jetty. Other deaths in the area brought the total number of fatalities to 20. Two critical oil refineries sustained major damage. News government censors didn't want the Axis powers to find out about, of course. In fact, national newspapers remained mostly silent on the hurricane and the death and destruction that it actually caused. At some point, the Weather Bureau finally realized that it had gone overboard in delaying an announcement to the hurricane's approach and minimizing its significance. According to a research paper written by a contemporary Weather Service staffer, the 1943 storm ended at least domestic meteorological censorship. They didn't name hurricanes back then, but today the storm of July 27, 1943 is known as the Secret Hurricane. Music for the show is being brought to you by Mr. John McNair over at Red Dog Guitars. I have to tell you, I stumbled on John's music while spending days and days looking for background music for the show. Well, John's music kept coming up as the sound that I absolutely wanted the show to be associated with. You see, his music just does something for my soul, and I absolutely love it. Best part about it is, John builds what is known as cigar box guitars. Simple three or four string guitars made from, you guessed it, old cigar boxes. To make things even more authentic though, he takes old vintage radios and turns them into mini amplifiers for these guitars. John was kind enough to let me use his music for the show, and I really hope that we can help him out by driving some traffic back to his site. Check him out at reddogguitars.com, it's all one word, R-E-D-D-O-G-G-U-I-T-A-R-S.com, that's reddogguitars.com. You'll also find all of his additional links to his music, as well as links on how to build these guitars and amplifiers for yourself. I'll also include all of his links on my social feeds and website as well. Do yourself a favor though and check him out. I really believe you won't be disappointed. That being said, thanks for listening to our first installment of Odds and Ends, and we'll see you next time on Backroad Legends.